With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Fog in the Channel. The podcast that gives you the continent's views and opinions on Brexit. My name is Stefan Vries and I'm based in Paris. When the Brits will leave in exactly six months from now, the continent will be isolated. And over the next half year, I will try to find an answer to the question how we Europeans are going to survive without our perfidious neighbours across the North Sea. I will talk to shopkeepers, grief counsellors, academics, bankers, wankers, relationship advisors, journalists and other interesting people all over Europe and maybe even to you. In this first episode, we'll learn how Brexit will transform strawberries into smoothies, what it takes for a Brit in Berlin to become a German citizen, and how a Dutch academic in Wales is being sandwiched between Remainers and Brexiteers. We cannot aim at anything less than the Union of Europe as a whole, and we look forward with confidence to the day when that Union will be achieved. But first, mayhem. <laughs> the great thing about Brexit is that there are new developments every week that makes you want to shout, What the fuck? In this segment, called Mayhem, I will look at the most remarkable remarks or reflections on Brexit of the last couple of days. And there was plenty to choose of. First, there was a speech by Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary. At the Tory party conference in Birmingham, Jeremy Hunt said this. Now, what happened to the confidence and ideals of the European dream? The EU was set up to protect freedom. It was the Soviet Union that stopped people leaving. And the lesson from history is clear. If you turn the EU club into a prison, the desire to get out of it won't diminish It'll grow, and we won't be the only prisoner that will want to escape. He compared the EU to the prison of the Soviet Union, as it tries to prevent member states from leaving. But Mr Hunt misses the point. Apart from the fact that the EU is also Britain, and Britain is also the EU, technically Hunt's government is at least co-responsible for his virtual Soviet prison. Hunt thinks that the EU wants to lock up the UK in order to keep it in the Union. But he's wrong. Of course, Europeans would prefer the Brits to stay in the EU, well, at least some of them, but in general the view on the continent is that if you really want to leave, Mr. Hunt, please do so. Getting out of the EU was your own choice, and nobody ever said it was going to be easy. But to think that the Europeans really would like to spank your British bottom for leaving is probably just wishful thinking. 
According to his own website, Jeremy Hunt hoped to make a fortune by trying to export marmalade to Japan. It was a flop, but it clearly did not teach him a lesson that maybe the world is not really interested in British products after all. It must be said though that Hunt was also the minister of the 2012 Olympics in London, and those games were a success. And successful events organized by Britain inspired Theresa May this weekend. The British Prime Minister proposed to organize a glorious post-Brexit festival in 2022. She said it should become a nationwide festival in celebration of the creativity and innovation of the United Kingdom. On social media, May's festival idea was being ridiculized. On Twitter, at NotTheOtherMark reacted, I visualize us being a bunch of toffs in a Gin Palace airship, taking in the apocalyptic post-Brexit wasteland below and congratulating each other loudly. The 2022 Brexit Festival would cost around £120 million, money that could be better invested in securing the food supply chain, because there's a real risk that Great Britain will be short of food only a couple of weeks after Brexit. That's why the British government decided to appoint David Rutley as the minister to oversee the protection of food supplies. Rutley has to make sure that the country will not run out of Marmite after March 29th. The Tory MP previously worked for supermarket chain Asda, owned by Walmart, and also for PepsiCo, so he is supposed to know a thing or two about food. But I wouldn't put my money on it. If I were British, I would start to stockpile processed foods right now. So get your canned Portuguese sardines, your Italian olive oil and your Belgian beer as soon as you can. And if you happen to be British and find that the buying food now will be too expensive, have a look at the Brexit bill. Brexit is actually costing the British economy already 500 million pounds a week, or 560 million euros, according to a study published this Sunday. The Centre for European Reform calculated that the British economy is about 2.5% smaller than it would have been if the public had voted to remain in the bloc in June 2016. And in the same period, the Eurozone's economy grew over 4%. And that's enough to organize about 4,000 post-Brexit festivals. Deal or no deal? That's the question. But with only six months left before Brexit, there isn't even something that starts to resemble an answer. More and more studies and reports on the financial and social consequences of a no deal or a hard Brexit show that it's going to be very rough in case of a no deal. One of them was conducted by SIPS, that's the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply. They found out that if there's no deal in March, up to 10% of British firms could go bankrupt. And all that's needed for this apocalypse is a 10 to 30 minute extra delay at the British borders. Joining me now is John Glenn, he's an economist at the SIPS. So one in 10 British firms going bankrupt due to longer delays at the UK borders. Um, that's pretty scary news, John. Yeah, so that figure has come from a survey which SIPS has conducted uh, on the impact of Brexit. So we went out to 865 supply chain managers and we asked them what the consequence in this instance of a 10 to 30 minute delay at the border would be. So this is a 10 to 30 minute delay to get your documentation checked so that you can go through the border if we had a situation in, in, in March, uh, at the end of March next year, where the UK exited uh, the EU with no deal. So in, in the UK now, we're starting to talk about day one, no deal. Um, so what would happen is uh, customs clearance checks would, would have to occur. Um, and, and we asked the guys, you know, what would happen if it took 10 uh, to 30 minutes to do that? Now, 
10% of them said that potentially that could cause their business to go bankrupt. And, and as a benchmark, if you have a non-EU uh, lorry coming through the port at the moment, it takes between about 30 and 40 minutes uh, to clear uh, customs. So a Turkish lorry, for example, coming into Dover in the south of England would take about 30 or 40 minutes uh, to clear uh, customs. At the moment, all EU traffic just just goes on to either the, the boat or, or the train. And there's absolutely no delay. But 10 to 30 minutes, that already sounds quite optimistic compared to what lorries from non-EU countries already are going through now. Yeah, well, absolutely. Imperial College London has done a lot of modelling of this. Uh, and, and they say that if there was a four-minute delay, that the queue of lorries would be 29 miles at the end of the first... Sorry, 19 miles at the end of the first day. And then for every additional minute... The queue continues by, sorry, grows by a further 10 miles. So what, what we mustn't confuse this number with is it, it, the actual delay at the port is what causes the queue. It's the queue that generates the cost for the business. So if you are 30 miles back in the queue, which it's not unreasonable to assume with the type of, type of checks that we're suggesting here, at the end of day one, it would probably take you 24 hours to get to the front of the queue. Now, remember that 20% of all the trade that goes through Eurotunnel uh, at the moment is perishable goods. And the British Retail Consortium uh, have done a survey of their members, and they, they have reckoned that 5% of a perishable load will deteriorate for every hour that the transit time is delayed. You know, So if you've got a truck, I don't know, with strawberries or oranges in or whatever, the, the, these goods tend to deteriorate at a rate of 5% per hour for every additional hour in transit. So that means that in just 20 hours, the goods in a lorry are basically worthless? Yeah, somebody said to, to me the other day, uh, if it's a lorry of strawberries, we better get used to, to eating smoothies because that's what it's going to be by the time it gets to <laughs> Yeah, so there is an upside to Brexit. We're all going to consume massive amounts of strawberries. Wow. smoothies. <laughs> Well, uh, it's that famous British sense of humour, I think. Eh? Yes, indeed. And that humour is probably one of the few things Europe will really miss after Brexit. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> but on a more serious note, uh, did you find already any companies that are now preparing for potential damage after Brexit? For instance, laying off people or waiting with new investments? Well, the really interesting thing there, Stefan, is the comparison of EU companies in the UK and UK companies with EU supply chains. So what we're finding is that EU companies who are, who've currently got supply chain in the UK are taking that supply chain uh, back uh, to the European Union and have been doing so almost since the vote happened in May uh, 2016. So our argument is that EU companies are ahead of the curve compared to UK companies in either looking to take uh, their supply chain back having taken it back, and a significant number of them have, or have de having decided that we're going to stay in the UK, uh, and then there are some that are still looking at it. UK businesses have started to look at it, more so uh, since the beginning of this year. But what we're actually finding with UK companies is when they come back and look to, to secure supplies uh, in the UK rather than in mainland Europe, two things are happening. First of all, there isn't the capacity uh, in the UK economy. They're just not the suppliers that are available. And secondly, there's a lack of skills. Um, and again, this, this relates to the fact that our economy is very, very uh, fully employed, uh, that obviously 
There's been a massive reduction in EU net migration into the UK since the vote. You know, if you tell somebody that they're not welcome at your dinner party, don't be surprised when they go home. You know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, I mean, it's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. Uh, so we've seen a massive collapse uh, in EU migration. But interestingly, there's been a very, very significant increase in net migration from non-EU countries. So all this nonsense about, you know, we want greater control of our borders, you know, the bit of our border that we can control, we're not actually controlling, which is non-EU migration. And it looks to me as if, you know, the whole migration issue is is a complete and utter, in English would say, red herring. It's a, it's a spurious conversation um, because essentially the thing that drives migration into the UK economy is growth in that economy. And if we need workers... Frankly, we'll get them for wherever we, we can. So there are now only six months left. Do you think that's enough time for British companies to take the necessary steps to prepare for a no-deal situation? Well, Stefan, if, 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 if the output of the negotiation process is a no-deal and, and what people are calling a hard Brexit, it's going to be, um, it's going to be very messy. You know, it's, it's not going to be a very pleasant transaction. Um, and it's easy for people who are pro-Brexit to say, well, that's just the cost that we have to pay um, in order to secure all of these supposed benefits of, of Brexit. But these are very real costs. And the, and the real problem is the one in 10 businesses that say they are going to go bankrupt, if they do actually go bankrupt, nobody will see it. You know, it will be in the official statistics. It will be businesses going bankrupt. And the narrative will be, well, that's just the normal process of a, you know, a, a functioning economy that businesses grow and businesses fail and don't associate it with Brexit, you know, um, which is terrible. You know, it is, it's a terrible situation to put these people in. But we do have to be positive. You know, my own position is that um, surely common sense will prevail. Uh, on, on both sides, and that we will reach a, a situation, I think, post May, uh, sorry, post March 2019, where we will have a transition period. What would be the best possible deal, according to you, between the UK and the European Union to make sure goods will move smoothly between the two? Well, the best deal would be some accommodation that means at the end of March next year that we have a two-year transition period. And that that two-year transition period gives us the time to put in place a technological solution that means that we don't have queues at the border. Both mainland Europe and the UK, uh, what real people in the real economy want is for their goods and services to keep moving. Yes, and when there's no deal, the Brits will be left with a lot of rotten fruit. But there are even people talking now about, you know, if, if we did have that chaotic uh, sort of solution that I outlined initially, after about five or six days, the UK and, and maybe even Europe would just have to lift the barriers and just say, let the stuff through. You know, it it would be it would be so chaotic. We 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 just cannot have that situation. Well, if we combine all the rotten strawberries with the old boys who provoke Brexit, I think we can give a whole new meaning to the term "eat a mess." Exactly. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, John Clan of Sips. What we are asking is for a very large amount of our own money back. I believe that Britain will be safer stronger and better off in a reformed European Union. Now, imagine being a Brit living on the European continent. For years you've been enjoying good food and beautiful weather. Maybe you have even found a partner with whom you created European children. 
So what's going to happen to you after March 29th? Well, I wish I had the answer, but at this very moment, the 2 million Brits or so living in Europe are entirely in the dark. Can they stay? Will they have to go? And if yes, on what conditions? Thousands already have decided to apply for the nationality of the country they live in. One of them is John Worth. He is a blogger on European affairs and also a candidate for the German Greens in the upcoming elections to the European Parliament. He has been living in Berlin for five years now and he decided to become a German. Let's talk to him now. Hello John, how is that going? A Brit living in Germany? Do you have a split personality? Uh, I'm not quite certain I'm a split personality. I've always been convinced by the value of the European Union personally and I voted Remain. Um, but the challenge, of course, is like I share this problem with 1.3 million other Brits across the rest of the EU is we rather like it where we live and we'd like to stay here. Um, and so therefore, I'm in the process of actually becoming German as well at the moment. I've started my, um, my, my citizenship process already. So hopefully by um, early next year, I'll be a German citizen as well as a British one. And how's the procedure going? Is it difficult to become German? It's not that uh, difficult. It's just rather time consuming. There are lots of different pieces of paperwork you need to gather. I, I passed the citizenship test before the, before the summer. I have a language test coming up next month. Uh, and then you have to submit a lot of paperwork. You have to have a, a, a translated birth certificate. You have to show your university uh, degrees. You, in my case as well, I have to also show my efforts at integration into German society, although no one exactly knows what that means. So I, I have quite a lot of paperwork to do, but ultimately the procedure isn't too hard in Germany. And indeed, in 2017, there was a 400% increase in the numbers of Brits getting German passports. Uh, so the 7,000 people who were successful at it uh, in Germany last year from the, from the UK originally, uh, they obviously didn't find it too, too onerous. Do you know any other Brits in Berlin who are in the same situation as you are and who have also applied to become German? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know um, personally, I know about a dozen people who have gone through the process or in the middle of going through the process. And um, I must admit, when I started broaching this kind of topic before the referendum, I did wonder what are Brits in Berlin going to think about the process of becoming German? Like, historically speaking, that's a rather interesting leap to make. Um, but ultimately, the attitude is, well, essentially, it's a passport. We like living in Germany. So therefore, it's a no brainer. Of course, we'll apply for German passports. Um, of course, some have encountered some difficulties. And in some parts of Germany, it's easier than others. In the conservative states of the South, in Baden-Württemberg and in Bavaria, it's a bit slower and a bit harder to get those things processed than it is in Berlin. Um, but essentially, generally, the attitude is positive. Um, and the attitude of German society, the attitude of German politics, is essentially, we understand that the Brits living in Germany, you've made your lives here, we'd like you to be able to stay, whatever happens with regard to Brexit. Um, and while they're not going to make that process simple or any more simple than it would be for anyone else, it's nevertheless, I don't feel there's an effort here to make Brit Brits feel unwelcome. Uh, I'm just as welcome here as I ever was. Now, when you finally become German, will you lose your British passport or are you allowed to keep both nationalities? EU citizens can have both, but of course, because of Brexit, Brits, therefore, would, would, that would not apply to Brits. What the German government has proposed, the law has not been passed yet, but the law has been proposed, is that any Brit applying until the end of 2020 would still have the right to dual nationality. And once you've got it, it can't be removed from you. 
So essentially, if you're a Brit in Germany at the moment, you should apply as soon as possible and manage to get all that paperwork done by the end of 2020. Because after 2020, chances are you'd have to give up the British passport in order to get the German one. The same also applies, of course, to the 120,000 Germans that live in the UK. If they get their British passports before the end of 2020, they can obviously keep their German ones. So essentially, the German approach, is, the German approach of dual nationality is quite complicated. But in the case of Brexit and regarding the Brits, they've taken a sensible and pragmatic approach. Now, you will be a candidate for the European Parliament in May next year. These elections are only open to European citizens. Um, what will happen if your application to become German is approved only after this date, so after May next year? Well, if Britain has left the EU, um, which is not a foregone conclusion at the moment, um, then I would essentially have to remove my name from the list. There's a bit of a challenge of the timetabling for me personally here because the list will be decided on 10th of November, by which time I'm not going to know if I'm a German citizen. But I know that I can remove myself from the list up until the very end of February 2019. So essentially, I'm going to have to try to get on the list anyway. And then if something goes wrong with my citizenship process, it gets delayed or something like that. Then, um, uh, then I may have to remove myself from the list subsequently. But still, looking at the current state of negotiations, it's also possible that Brexit may be delayed uh, due to political instability in the UK. Uh, and if that happens, then I can still run as a British citizen. Now, there are only six months to go before B-Day. How do you feel personally about Brexit? Um, it's a tricky situation, obviously. I, I, I voted Remain and I see a, I'd like to see a European future for the UK. But I'm also extremely lucky that I live in Germany. I'm kind of sheltered from the worst of the madness in, in the UK. And it sort of depends a bit which day it is. Some days I see British politics and the way the British politicians are behaving towards the EU. And I say to myself, actually, it might be best if the British left. Enough of this messing around, enough of this nationalism and bashing the European Union. But then the other way around, if you look at it economically and the lives that will be made more difficult or made more complicated as a result of Brexit, Part of me still wants a solution to all of this, but essentially to say, actually, the best option for Britain, even now, is still to remain in the European Union. So uh, it's a bit double. Do you think the Europeans will survive when Britain sails off? Oh, totally. I have no worry about that at all. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at the opinion polls, um, Pew, the research institute in the USA, did some research about this. You've actually seen a rebounding of support for the European Union across the rest of the EU since um, Britain's Brexit vote. Essentially, I think lots of Europeans look at the British and say, well, what are you doing there? And look at how difficult that is. And actually, you're essentially shooting yourselves in the foot. So I, I have no doubt, particularly on the basis of the way the negotiations have gone, that the European Union will do just fine without the Brits in it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about that at all. Okay, well, we'll see about that after March 29. If Britain manages to leave in March 2019, because that's really not a foregone conclusion at the moment. No, no, yeah, it isn't. It isn't. You're also the author of the very worthy blog johnworth.eu on European affairs, and you're a candidate for the German Greens next year in the European elections. Thanks very much, John Worth, in Berlin. <music> Eight million people living in the UK are citizens of another EU country. Just like John Worth in Berlin, they have no clue what's going to happen to them after Brexit. This uncertainty is especially palpable in the academic world. About 20% of the staff of British universities is European. The Dutch scientist Nick Buma is one of them. 
He is a senior lecturer in physical organic chemistry at Cardiff University and has been living in Wales since 2002. Together with over 250 colleagues, he calls for a referendum on the final Brexit terms. And he is my next guest. Hello, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Yes, you're Dutch, living in the UK for almost two decades, but you don't have the British nationality, right? Uh, no, that's right. Um, and in fact, that's one of the uh, the tricky things, I think, for a lot of Dutch citizens, that unless you have a British partner, you can't even um, get British citizenship without losing your Dutch citizenship. You're an academic, and the academic world is one of the sectors being hardest hit by the consequences of Great Britain leaving the European Union. But at your university, the University of Cardiff, you're no longer just a researcher, but also... Uh, well, an activist. Uh, what have you been doing recently, exactly? So it, it all started actually commenting, and I guess as most people do these days, commenting on Twitter. But um, it, it really, a few months ago, um, we started to. Uh, the, the, well, actually, a few months ago, there was a, a letter in the in the in the Times, and it was a, a response to uh, some academics who had come out in favor of, of Brexit. And um, I ended up signing a letter uh, actually against Brexit. Um, and this letter was picked up uh, at my, my home institution at Cardiff University as well. Um, and it led to the formation of a, of, a, of a small group of people who were trying to come up with ideas. How can we oppose Brexit? How can we actually um, create the understanding that there needs to be of the, the potential impact of Brexit uh, on the UK, on Wales uh, and on Cardiff University. So that small group of, of academics uh, and, and professional support staff um, ended up coming up with the idea of writing a letter to our vice chancellor, um, asking our vice chancellor to really make it clear what the impact of Brexit or the potential uh, impact of Brexit on Cardiff University can be. Um, because we believe that the impact on Cardiff University would be serious and it would be seriously negative. Um, and we also think that if people are aware of these kinds of impacts, um, that may actually change the popular opinion about whether Brexit should go ahead uh, or not. So we wrote a letter um, bringing up a, a series of different points that we believe are, um, are a threat to, to Cardiff University. And then we sent that letter around and we asked colleagues to, to sign it. Um, so we sent it, we gave it to our vice chancellor when there were 250 signatures. Um, and since then, there has been news coverage on this and uh, the number of signatures have actually gone up um, quite considerably beyond the 250 signatures. So a lot of your colleagues uh, actually agree with you. Um, that's maybe also because about a third of staff at Cardiff University is from the EU. Um, what is the concrete impact of Brexit? Do you already notice a change of life at your university? Yeah, so the, the, the concrete impacts of Brexit on academic life are, as you say, they're, they're, they're really unknown. And I think that is to a large extent because of the fact that the, the current situation is completely unknown. We don't know whether it's going to be a hard, disorderly Brexit, whether we will just smooth, smoothly move into the transition uh, regime. Um, and, and that means that we have to think about what is actually going to happen. What's the worst case scenario on the 30th of March? Um, if I really go for the worst case scenario on the 30th of March, I suddenly as a third country citizen or as a citizen from a country outside the UK, um, I would suddenly no longer have the right to even work for this employer. That, that, that of course, doesn't make any sense. Um, and the prime minister has already said that he wants us, the 
between three and four million uh, European citizens in the UK. Uh, she wants us to stay. Um, so we're probably not going to be kicked out. But in reality, we don't know exactly what is going to happen. No, no. And do you see a drop in Erasmus applications, for instance? Not necessarily a drop, but here I can only comment on what I've seen um, personally, Erasmus students coming to my to my research group. Um, and I'm in contact with the university uh, in, in Rennes, and we, are, we accept several Erasmus students uh, from that university every year. Uh, and this year was the first year that um, the, the topic of Brexit really came up in a we need to take into account that there is a risk that they are no longer eligible for an Erasmus Plus stipend um, after the 29th of March. And we've never even had to consider that this is a risk for these students coming to the to the UK. So the applicants are there, but the applicants now suddenly need all kinds of safety nets and we don't, well, may need all kinds of safety nets. And we don't even know how to organize those safety nets. I can imagine that's pretty nerve-wracking sometimes, right? Are you or your students still able to concentrate on your research work? Yes, yes. Uh, but you can already hear the doubt in my voice, I think. Um, yes, we can focus. We, we focus on our work. Uh, but it's, it is a massive distraction to always have these, these little indications of, oh, what is going to happen? How is this going to work out? Uh, to, to always have these, to have these distract distractions 24-7 is something that, to be honest, I and every researcher can really do without. Um, and it, yeah, for example, uh, I know that one of my colleagues is uh, applying for the permanent residency, and, and this involves a, a massive file. Uh, you have to fill in uh, where you have been every time that you've been outside the UK. It's expensive. Uh, it's time consuming. And that's, yeah, things that we don't really need and things that we don't, well, that we didn't really expect to run into, of course, when we moved from, from our country to another EU country. Now, living in Wales, that's a part of the UK where they voted uh, with a very large majority in favour of Brexit. Do you see a change in opinion around you or are the Welsh still convinced that they voted the right thing? This is an interesting question and, and it, it, it kind of touches on all these ideas of your, what is it, your, the, your, the bubble that you happen to be in. So if you ask at a university, um, even before the referendum, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that uh, nobody would actually vote for it, vote to leave. Um, and that's kind of still true. If I talk to my colleagues, uh, if they have an opinion about Brexit, then it is no, 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 no. Let's, well, let's hope that it really doesn't happen. Um, but if you go outside um, the, the, the academic circles, if you go outside universities, um, you do from time to time run into people who have opinions about the European Union um, that are shockingly negative um and they are they tend to be really quite quite vocal um it's it's actually it's, it's disturbing it's um uh, it's it's scary um to see what some people how much some people have ended up hating the uh, the eu and because it is so polarized um and because it is so bound to uh, certain groups it's really quite difficult to to see how much of a change in the, in the opinion there, there might be. There seems to be a change in, in public opinion um, and lots of opinion polls indicate that there is a change in opinion. But I still wouldn't be sure that if there were enough other referendum that uh, there would be a vote to, uh, a vote to remain. A bubble, huge polarization. Um, 
And you, as a European citizen, you are caught in the middle between the Remainers and the Brexiteers. Yes, Yes, and it's and even that is a so so sometimes it looks like a sandwich and sometimes it looks like a very thin slice of bread that's only buttered on one side. It's um, <laughs> well, what I, what I mean by that is that initially I thought, okay, the European citizens are the ones that are coming out of this really, really badly um, because we don't know what our rights are going to be. On the other hand, if you, in principle, if things go reasonably well, I should. Uh, retain the right to live in the in the UK because I've lived here for so long, um, but I would still have access to the EU 27 as well. I think the people who probably come out worse are people um, who only have a UK passport, who desperately want to remain in the European Union, and who are basically being cut off um, the, the the EU. Now, on the at the same time, if you look at the way that people uh, behave, there are quite um, ardent remainers um, who, who, who really um, work together with the, the, the EU27 citizens, with the uh, UK citizens um, in, in, in the rest of the European Union. But at the same time, there is a, a kind of massive silent majority that just seems to either accept the fact that we're going to leave the European Union, um, despite the fact that they that they disagree um so it's it looks as if um there are a lot of people who would want to stay in the european union um who have just kind of given up who don't act who don't say anything against brexit and just accept it as a as a as a fact of life and i think this is going back to the to the letter that we wrote i think this is one of the the, the, the big problems at the moment is that there is a, a, a large majority of, of the UK public, of the UK voters, who do have an opinion, um, but don't seem to voice it at all, um, and just accept the, uh, the inevitable. Um, and I think that's where the, the, that, that whole kind of sandwich system becomes a bit, you, you don't know what side you, you are. So yes, we're together with some of the remainers, uh, but then there are other people who, voted remain who have lost interest and just accept what's going to happen um and then of course uh we're um annoyed sometimes scared by people who are um uh, strongly um leave uh, well leave promoting yes, yes, yes. well you're in limbo it sounds pretty complicated um i hope to talk to you again in a couple of months and that you will keep us updated on the impact of brexit on academic life thank you very much nick burma at cardiff university Well, that wraps up this first episode. If you're still hoping that Brexit is not going to be a total car crash and that in spite of everything, there will be some light at the end of the Eurotunnel, then you are not alone. A survey commissioned by the BBC Local Radio this week showed that 62% of British adults say miracles are possible. I just hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please join the conversation on Twitter or on Facebook at Channel Fog. And please share this podcast with your friends or with your enemies or maybe even both. And if you're a lever, leave something else. A review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with some more fog from the isolated continent. Goodbye. Brexit means Brexit. And we're going to make a success of it.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.